It's now 50 years since a real news service was established on Radio New Zealand's predecessor, the NZBC. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme examines the challenges that lie ahead when it comes to both funding and technology. It's 117 years since Marconi perfected the science of radio, 91 years since radio broadcasts began in New Zealand, and this week, 50 years since independent broadcast news started on New Zealand's only broadcaster at the time, the NZBC, and the radio waves these days seem to be saturated with sound. You're listening to Radio New Zealand National. It's nine minutes after eight. And you sure got a friend in the breeze. A radio tuning dial is these days crammed with comment, defying early predictions that radio would be upstaged and eventually displaced by its glamorous younger sibling, television. Our music, your playlist. How Racky on Demand. 90.9 ZM. You're listening to Radio New Zealand Concert. I'm Eric Frickberg, and in this program, I look at the remarkable resilience of radio with countless digital alternatives available to them. Why do people listen? And will they continue to do so? Radio New Zealand National. It's 7am and staff at Radio New Zealand National are preparing another edition of Morning Report, juggling stories about Greece, asset sales in New Zealand and new abortion figures. There is Egypt, a missing tramper, and an interview with the Minister of Finance, Bill English. So, so this should be all right. So we go to the Greeks pre-record first. So without English, we'll go in on that. So that, that should work just fine. Hopefully English will call in after that. It's as hard a job now as it was during any of the previous 8,000 or so shows, with producers dependent, among other things, on the cooperation of guests who may or may not come through on time. I don't think he's going to ring in. It's nine past. Come on, Minister. At another location in Auckland, staff at a very different station are trying to attract and hold listeners. Here, there are no lengthy interviews but short news bulletins squeezed in between songs by Beyonce, Rihanna or Lady Gaga. 90.9 ZM. Both stations are trying to attract as many listeners as they can. Radio New Zealand has a charter requiring it to cover news and current affairs in depth and make programmes for all groups within New Zealand society. For ZMFM, along with other commercial stations, the goal is to win popularity, which is a clearly defined dollar value. Every extra pair of ears adds to the rating graph and helps bring in a few more dollars of income. On 90.9 in Wellington, 91.1 on the coast, this is ZM. Asylum seekers capsize, cheating site thinking football and quarters underway. Glenn Stewart at two past seven. Newsbeat. Stations like this and 250 others bring to New Zealand an almost chaotic variety. Radio the world over has long attracted creative minds. Geniuses like Peter Sellers and Orson Welles went on to dazzle another media after laying a groundwork in radio. But when it came to news, radio looked the other way, in New Zealand at least. News was ignored completely in favour of light entertainment by the companies that brought radio of a sort crackling into life in 1921. This
this sort of fare was supported by governments who wanted radio to be just a source of light entertainment. At the time, governments were not just opposed to broadcast news; they were worried about the whole idea of radio broadcasting. From 1923, people had to buy a license, not just to operate a radio transmitter, but also to use a receiver just to listen to the radio. To qualify, radio listeners as well as broadcasters had to be over 14 years old, had to have a character reference, and had to prove they were of British stock. Amid this bureaucratic control, a new service of sorts came into existence in the late 20s. But its practitioners wouldn't be recognised by modern audiences as journalists at all. Interviewed years later, one of their number, Gerard Curran, spoke about how people worked. They came on duty somewhere in mid-afternoon, and they cut up the newspaper.、Uh, and they weren't allowed to use certain material from the newspaper, but other material they were able to take. They also got very heavy telegrams of British official wireless and that, that kind of thing. The dependence on newspapers led to a peculiar, by modern ears, announcement on New Year's Day in the early 1930s. It said that being a public holiday, there were no newspapers that day, so there was no news. The process also led to some unintentionally funny items, such as this one about a lightning strike. Mr. Sinclair had just finished cleaning his bath when the lightning struck. I got this sharp feeling in my elbow, said Mr. Sinclair, and I thought I had had it. The shock sent me hopping around the house like a two-year-old. It was a nasty experience, and it took about an hour and a half for the tingling feeling to go out of my arms. That ends the news read by Ernest Lagrove. For years, the news service was controlled by the Department of Tourism and Publicity, and before that, the office of the Prime Minister. The holder of that post in the early 1950s was Sid Holland. And he was determined to use broadcasting to support his position in the 1951 waterfront dispute. Law and order must be preserved. Cabinet, therefore, has decided to establish a civil emergency organisation of loyal citizens, which will stand with the government in carrying out any task the emergency may require in protecting life and property. Brian Pauling, now a broadcast teacher, worked in radio back then, and says there was radio news of a sort, but hardly recognisable as such. Most of it came via five regular broadcasts from the BBC、uh, each day, and at nine o'clock at night there was a sort of national news roundup, which was、uh, written by、um, by bureaucrats and and.、Uh, For politicians and and broadcast in a in a no surprises manner, so、um, it was it was rather bland. Despite this, the days of government-controlled news were nearing an end. People like Sir Robin Day in Britain and Ed Murrow in the United States pushed at the boundaries of the journalism of the day, and New Zealand broadcasters wanted to do the same thing. The historian Patrick Day says Treasury argued strongly against this, saying a broadcast news service here would be a waste of money, since New Zealand already had plenty of newspapers. But when an independent news service was finally set up in 1962, it was achieved surprisingly easily. The New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation had just been established, and its first director general, Gilbert Stringer, says it was empowered to make its own plans for its own future. 
In the past, when we wanted to start the new service, we would have had to have gone to the government, and they did go up to the government, and the government didn't give them the OKs. When the corporation was formed, we wouldn't have to go to the government. All we did was go to the corporation. And the corporation's first meeting had before it a submission for the formation of a new service. I think it was a shock to a lot of people. The new service was floated on that very day. Three months later, that news service was on air. Britain's common market negotiator in Brussels, Mr Heath, said after the final all-night discussions at the weekend that the meeting had been a long one, but useful progress had been made. The four patients who escaped from the Porirua Hospital about 11 o'clock on Saturday night have all been discovered. Los Angeles police report that they have provisionally listed the death of the film actress Marilyn Monroe as suicide. Despite the news service's independence, it was frequently under pressure. Bob Gregory was a trainee recruit of the news service before going on to become a professor of political science at Victoria University. You'd be working in the newsroom and, say, on the morning shift, the bulletins would be broadcast and the phone would ring. And it would be a phone call from the Director General of the time asking about the contents of a particular item in the bulletin and were the journalists sure of their facts about this. And of course the response on the part of the journalists was generally to say, well the administrators should be keeping their fingers out of this. The content of the news bulletin has absolutely nothing at all to do with them. Sometimes political interference could be overt, even physical. A later editor of Radio News, Ray Lilly, describes one such case. I provided some coverage out of T.Y. Point, the aluminium smelter, when it first opened, and there were great protests in in Invercargill. In fact, something like 5,000 people marched in protest against the switch-on of the aluminium smelter's third pot line. And so we just told this story. And one of the people there was Robert Muldoon, and Rob Muldoon was outraged. He was Minister of Finance, I think, at the time, or associate, one or the other. He was outraged. He walked up to... Major General Walter McKinnon. He was the chairman of the Broadcasting Corporation Board. Literally took him by the front of his dinner jacket and said he wanted an investigation into how that piece got to air. I stood and watched this. But a full investigation was undertaken and eventually an edict that controversial scripts had to be vetted, edited and approved at senior editorial level at all times. Despite incidents like this, radio journalists gradually consolidated their position, became more assertive, even abrasive. It became common for interviewers, not politicians, to be accused of being rude or interrupting. All right, what about the pay-per-view movies? Uh, the movies, yeah, I stayed in hotels a lot, etc. I can't recall what exactly they were, drugs, sex, rock and roll, but I'm a movie buff, but I don't have a habit of... Were they, were they the adult type of movie? Sorry, I don't, I don't recall, mate, yeah. Well, well, hang on, you don't recall? Yeah, I, I, I watch a lot of movies. I'm a movie buff. Okay, were they pornographic movies? I, I don't know, I don't recall. You don't know? Is it possible they were pornographic movies, Mr Jones? Well, I won't rule it out, but I can't remember. Okay, you're not ruling out that uh, you used your card to pay for pornographic the movies? The same or worse, would you step aside? argument. I mean, am no, I no, 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 it's not, because you've done all this. Absolutely you've rendered a person's political career on the basis of you delivering a better result. I'm asking you, if you can't deliver a better result, would you step aside? It depends who else is the caucus. But, John, this sounds like a complete muddle. The law's not perfect. Why not just toss it out? What's the big deal about it? Well, because <clears throat> you'd have to go uh, through an enormous process uh, that would completely derail Parliament. It's not as simple as people Derail say. Parliament? Well, it, it, it would arguably be 
um, an extremely explosive issue going back the other way. With, with who? Well, with a whole lot of people. Like who? Well, like a lot of people. Like and, who? Well, like you a lot of You could pass it by lunchtime. Radio New Zealand's Sean Plunkett and Mary Wilson there, along with News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking. They were speaking to Shane Jones, Don Brash and John Key, respectively. Yet government ministers can exert their own control, choosing carefully where and when to appear and before which journalist. Of course, not all or even most radio journalism is made up of political conflict. Some of the best reporting happens far from the beehive. The simplicity and clarity of a well-written radio account can stick in the mind. Take this eyewitness account of the sinking of the Wahine in 1968 by Paddy O'Donnell. Someone has just pointed out that a lifeboat is coming in or a boat carrying people of some description is coming from the vicinity of the Wahine. Craft of every description are heading out and have been heading out for the past quarter hour uh, from Worsa Bay. There have been surf life-saving boats from the surf club along here, dinghies, launches, motorboats, uh, a whole truckload of inflatable life rafts came through ten minutes ago. They've all gone out to help. Another example is the Morning Report host Jeff Robinson's description of earthquake damage in the Christchurch Central Business District. The old stone buildings were all collapsed. Right next to me now, as we pause for a moment, there's a ute, and the windscreen is shattered and scarred. Obviously something fell from a building above straight onto it. And just behind that, a car, crumpled wreck, with rubble all over it, squashed. Anybody sitting in that would have had no chance at all. And the building on the right, oh, that is shattered. The whole front has come down. It's a mess. We're seeing letterboxes just twisted and pushed to the side. The car we're going by now, it looks like it's been flattened by one of those machines for a scrap metal company, just squashed flat. So, for 50 years, radio news has been a condensed version of life itself. But will all this last? Will the second half century of radio news prove as fertile as its first? One of the big changes is that there are now far fewer reporters available to cover the news. A journalist on Radio Live, Paul Gallagher, describes his 14-hour day covering the Scott Guy murder trial. I will uh, go live into the breakfast bulletins. Uh, while I'm in the courtroom itself and following what's been said by uh, all of the lawyers and the witnesses that are um, giving evidence, and uh, while I follow what they're saying, I'm also cutting up um, what I've recorded and writing stories for every hour. And obviously, with a moving story like a court coverage, you can't just file one story for an hour. You have to keep up to date uh, with what best story is in that hour so you might file three four five stories in that hour and then your producer at the other end will choose which one they want to use for that next bulletin but there are other challenges including multiple sources of information available via the internet this means people don't have to listen to the radio at all but can pick up information at will often interactively from digital gadgets in their own time Radio New Zealand's chief executive, Peter Kavanagh, says this organisation is making the most of digital technology, but he doesn't think it'll bring to an end traditional broadcasting on an established radio frequency. I don't think pure on-demand news and information um, will ever provide a full public 
broadcasting service, for example. I think many people rely on tuning to a service like Radio New Zealand and know that we will keep them informed about the information they need to know. We'll curate content and we'll present it to, to them without them needing to know that they necessarily needed to know that information. Whereas on demand, you've got to go looking for it or someone's got to advise you that it's there and send you a, a link to it. There's certainly a very high value in doing that, and we're doing both of those things at the moment. But I see the two uh, working hand in hand rather than one replacing the other. Bill Francis spent much of his career developing News Talk ZB, previously the commercial arm of Radio New Zealand and now its biggest rival. These days he heads a lobby group, the Radio Broadcasters Association. He thinks combing the internet for material can be a solitary thing, but listening to the radio gives the impression of having company. There are a whole range of aspects of the radio that we know now that will still be relevant in the future. The personality for a start. People want to interact with someone, and that will never go away as long as you have a radio station. And I think that's one of the reasons that radio today, even after the advent of the internet, is still as popular as ever, still has a strong demand for connection between a host and an audience. One drawback to picking and choosing off the internet is the huge size of the task. Trusting the schedule is a way around this. People rely on Kim Hill and a producer, for instance, to do their thinking for them. Brian Pauling gives another reason for the resilience of radio. Radio is the one medium, and it's the only medium, that you can actually use while you're doing something else. It's the medium that you can switch the station on and it's there. You don't have to do anything else. You can drive your car, uh, you can work at your desk, you can do all of the things that you want, and no other medium is able to offer that. The podcast doesn't offer that because you've got to actually go and seek. Uh, a podcast is a pull technology, whereas the radio station is a push technology. It's, it's there waiting for you. The number of stations competing to be the one waiting for you now numbers about 250. Many are small niche broadcasters, but all are highly competitive, and last year Radio New Zealand National edged out its main rival News Talk ZB for top spot and now holds a number one listing for market share. This was achieved despite a freeze on funding that Peter Kavanagh says has been difficult. It's certainly been tough over the last few years and the funding freeze isn't likely to end any time soon, it has to be said. But Radio New Zealand, like all publicly funded organisations, is in the same boat. Uh, we've made it our priority over the last few years to give priority uh, when we're looking at cost-cutting measures to protect uh, the programme-making activities of the organisation and wherever possible to cut costs in non-programme-related areas. The Minister of Broadcasting, Craig Foss, says for the near future, the situation will remain pretty much the same. Radio New Zealand have done very well with their um, pretty much flatline budgets over recent years, and we've just had the budget round for this year, so I can't say what's coming next year, although I can say that we are committed to the public broadcasting model that we currently have. We are committed to the existing funding streams, but I can't predict, because Mr English will be on the phone pretty quickly, actually, what we're doing next year. Other than what you've seen in the recent budget is a four-year budget forecast, and I'm pretty confident that the team within RNZ and the other entities the taxpayer owns will continue to be able to deliver. 
That four-year forecast shows funding essentially flat till 2016. Bill Francis says private radio networks have also found life commercially difficult in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, but they've weathered the storm all the same. If you have a look at the advertising revenues since 2008 when the recession started, you can see that there's, there was a decline for some time. But in 2011, the figures that were released not so long ago showed that radio held its share from 2010, around 113 of the advertising market. And if you looked at the other media outlets, television and radio stayed flat, newspapers and magazines went down, and interactive was up. So that's probably a good indication of where the media world sits right now. Keep up with News Talk ZB News. CTV. Amid all this activity, news remains as vital now as it was 50 years ago. Radio New Zealand spends about a third of its budget on news. In the commercial world, News Talk ZB made news the focus of its talk-based output. Bill Francis says there was a deliberate decision to change the ZB stations from trying to be all things to all people to copying trends in Australia and the United States. News Talk ZB in particular was able to establish with a personality like Paul Holmes quite a special brand of what happened in their breakfast show and in their drive show. But it took quite a long time for it to be accepted, and Paul Holmes in particular took quite a long time, probably around 18 months, to become accepted. And he was finding his style in this brand as well. And so once that was established, that here you had a breakfast show that covered off current affairs, but in a way that was opinionated and made comment and got reaction, then that became very successful and, in fact, a ratings winner. Five down to Ned City Newsbeat back at 730. 90.9 ZM. Bring on the day. News also features on a pop music station like ZMFM, for which cool is a commercial imperative. Its content director, Christian Boston, says his young listeners want to know what's going on, even if they won't always admit it. If you ask the young people, do they want news... The answer is going to be no. But if you ask them, do they want to know what's going on around the world, then they answer yes. Generation Y, they want it now, and they want it quickly, and they want it on their own terms. Too much detail can cause tune-out. If it's too long, nah. If it doesn't affect me, nah. There's a lot of things where we actually tailor the news. But at the end of the day, the big story will always be the big story. We just give it in more bite-sized, concise chunks. And we also order the stories differently. So how well is news doing after its first half century? There's only one really reliable judge, the public for whom it's aimed. Radio news is usually quite um, comprehensive and we'll have a lot more points of views, which is quite interesting at times. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah I quite enjoy it. I just seem to have a bit of everything all the time and uh, I think it's a good service. I don't actually listen to the news, to be honest. I only listen to it when it comes up. Otherwise, I watch TV to see the TV news. Uh, I'd say it's a little bit brief. <laughs> uh, we listen to ZM, so it's usually quite succinct, but it is a bit short, I think, You know, if, if you don't watch TV news. Within the radio industry, there is quiet optimism about the future. Christian Boston of ZMFM is positive. 
its biggest asset is its personality. The fact that it is immediate, but okay, Twitter's immediate, but television is less immediate and newspaper is definitely less immediate, but radio's immediacy is still its strength, but its key difference at the moment for us is the personality. And it's the personalities that really move to the fore because music is commoditized now. They can get the music from anywhere, whereas they can't get personalities from anywhere. If you own the personalities, then that's what's unique to your brand. Brian Pauling, one-time broadcaster, now broadcasting teacher, is also confident about the future of radio. When I started in broadcasting in 1959, the moment television started in 1960, I wanted to switch to television because I was convinced that radio would die. Um, You have to admit that the golden years of radio were after that. Um, So um, I think we we always exaggerate the demise of mediums. Um, Books were going to die. Um, The cinema was going to die as a result of television. Um, Mediums uh, don't die off as easily as that. The radio industry as a whole has huge momentum, aided by powerful personalities. A barrage of fact, comment and opinion fills almost every spot on a tuning dial, and there seems little chance of that ending anytime soon. I am Eric Frickberg, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by Chris Adams.